1: Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz.
3: Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark and also Hugh Sein. Our guest today on Music Buzz podcast is Will Turpin, a singer-songwriter in his own right of his own tunes, of which we'll be talking about today and also longtime bassist of the band Collective Soul, who are one of the most successful rock bands of the 90s, behind seven number one hits in a seven-year period, and they've sold over 20 million records worldwide. And they've got a brand new record, which is awesome, their 12th album called Vibrating. We'll talk about that today as well. So welcome to the music buzz, Will Turpin.
2: Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Appreciate y'all having me on. Will, it's great to have you here today. Let's start, talk about your your record that came out a few years back, the Serengeti Driver's record. I was listening to that this morning, and there was a lot of stuff I didn't expect to hear on there that I heard. All the arrangements and stuff were were great. I expected that. There was a lot more keyboard than I expected to hear. There was a couple of of different kinds of feels like the On and on was kind of a bluegrass vibe with mandolin. Very cool tune. Didn't expect it. And Belong, I really dug that with the congas, kind of a funky thing with that cool guitar riff. Were you singing all the tunes?
0: Yeah, that's me on vocals, yeah.
2: I assume you're playing keyboards or the songs were written on the keyboards?
0: Yeah, I mean, this can go for a little bit, just giving you a little bit about my background. Piano was my first instrument.
4: Is that why there's an up- old upright piano on the, on the road in the desert?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, that makes sense. I like that, yeah.
4: It was my it was my first instrument too. Uh, you
0: went straight to the cover artwork too, didn't you?
4: <laughs> Tell us about your musical background.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a a musical home, to say the least. My mom wasn't musical, but my dad, uh, his whole life, he wanted to be a musician, and he was. He um, he was signed to Atco Records, underneath Atlantic Records, uh, in a band called Smoke Rise. And very soon after that, he had just been out of the army. Um, he enlisted and tried out for the army band, but he got out of the army. My grandfather was renting a home that he first owned in, in the fifties and my dad and my mom moved there. And that's where I lived for a little bit. Uh, and that home had a basement, uh, that was unfinished and it had space upstairs and I must've been two or three years old when my dad started the music store upstairs. And, uh, in 70, around 75, he decided he was going to build a studio to obviously facilitate what he was doing. He was in bands and, uh, He was interested in recording bands. My dad was that guy that, in an era where you couldn't go to YouTube and learn how to build a studio, my dad would, our dining room table was always books, notes, drafting tables. Uh, He would just find the book and he would figure out how to do it, you know, And, and he always had a good group of friends around him, you know, it was always a, back in that day, it was always a team effort too, right, you know. You remember when people used to actually just stop by the music store just to see what was going on, you know? And are
4: we talking TIAK Atari era, or are we talking Studer and Revox? And he did get a Studer uh, eventually, but yeah, the first the
0: first machine would have been an eight track machine in 1976. I've still got the two inch machine because uh, I own the studio now. Took ownership of my father's studio when he passed away almost four years ago. The uh, I still got the two inch machine, but yeah, man, and there was a side room in our house too. Drum set, piano, albums. I used to put put on albums and play drum set to them. So my first instruments were piano and drums. Then the small town story happens with Ed working at my dad's studio. When he got after a year of Berkeley, he's he's right in my dad's studio back at home. My dad gives him the green light to use any extra time at that studio to work on his craft. And Ed Ed did not uh, miss a beat. He he took full advantage of that and. Me and my friends, including his brother, Dean, we watched Ed hone his craft and we were fans. And, uh, you know, the short story is as soon as we got out of high school, we started joining his band. Uh, his friends were getting married and getting real jobs. Uh, he's he's seven, eight years older than the core of the original band. And I was the last one to join. I was in I was in music school. I was a music major. I i had switched to orchestration. So, like, you know, the arranging and the piano stuff, It's it's really what's in my head. Not really a bass player necessarily, but I was the last one. I remember, I remember calling Ed and uh telling him that I would play bass. And he's like, You sure you can play bass? I was like, got my best friends all around me, and I know your music, I think I can play bass. And uh and so that's how I ended up on bass and collective soul, man. I love being part of that rock and roll rhythm section and and kind of feeling like that's my role, locking in the the ups and the downs and locking in the rhythm sections, the arrangements. You know, I've got all these other things that start on piano for me. A lot of them start with Wurlitzer. You heard that also. But it's good. Me, Dean, and Ed have always thought that it's good to exercise your artistic uh, you know, tendencies outside of the band as well. So I just thought that this record would have been, you know, I thought it was a solo record. And, uh, yeah, a lot of them started on piano and keyboards.
4: Did you orchestral sc- schooling to where you are comfortable scoring and you know how to arrange instruments within the orchestra? Definitely. I know a lot of musicians get into orchestrating, but then they end up getting someone to work with, to actually do the scoring. You know what I'm saying? The actual. Yeah. I get some string
0: charts every now and then, but also when it's, when it's pop music, I mean, literally the most we get into is four parts, you know, okay. and most of the time. So we don't want to make the mix sound too fat. And you want everything to be in its own space. It's It's really more about two or three parts and which parts do we double and which parts do we bring to the front? Yeah. I used to look at a 76, 76- bar staff and understand what that meant and have to analyze it and uh and music theory you know all that stuff i really loved. but uh you know in rock and roll it's more about feel and understanding how to get that feel across the speakers
4: do you find when you're writing on piano i've talked to other musicians that play piano and when you write on piano the tendency is for you to end up with maybe i'm amazed or your song or a piano song have you got to where you can write the song on piano but visualize stripping the piano out of the actual arrangement to where it becomes something else? Or do you find piano is always at the root somewhere in the track?
0: For me, especially when, when it comes to songs, it's, I, I sometimes feel creative and I can sit down and maybe something will, will come about. Uh, and I'll just start just, just trying to be creative. But for the most part, the songs that are good, the ones that stick around, they kind of just, they happen. They just happen right there. And I can, I can hear a verse in a chorus and I understand what the meaning of the song is. Pretty instantaneously,
2: and you you know where that needs to go instrumentally at that point when you're hearing that in your head.
0: I kind of know where the the core is, and then then the fun part is getting in the studio and oh, I didn't realize a mandolin's gonna lead this whole song on and on. But I did start that one on acoustic, not on piano. So you can and that's the one you said was bluegrassy. I did start that one on on acoustic. and on. But yeah, I didn't know mel- uh, the mandolin melody was gonna be a theme throughout that whole song until we got into it. My buddy Jason horde on mandolin just started ripping some beautiful parts and, uh, yeah. and I move them around. I like, I like using pro tools and
2: figuring out where to put some of these beautiful places. You use these tools. It's they're wonderful to have. You don't have to cut that two inch tape anymore, you know? <laughs>
3: You mentioned the band, you know, starting out with Dean and Ed, and, and you three are the core, really original members, if you will, of the band that have been in the band the entire time. So, who are? I mean, we were talking about the Collective Soul before the the call here a little bit, and you know, when you hear a Collective Soul song in the radio, you know it's you guys. You guys just have this very unique sound. So, who are your biggest influences from a, from the perspective of the band?
0: I think the band were super steeped in the seventies. Uh, And some of the bands that bled over from the 60s, Rolling Stones, Beatles, I know Beatles didn't bleed over, but believe me, the Wings, all everything Wings did, everything Lennon did in the 70s. We're super steeped in the 70s, but the 80s, like the bands that we shared that we really, really looked up to as far as like our generation, uh, U2 would have been a big deal. In excess, you know, what was considered alternative back then. The police would have been a big deal to us. But those are the ones we consider in our era. Uh, And even stuff like the outfield. I used to, gosh, I used to digest those outfield records over and over.
3: Man, those are so good. They are. They get better and better the more you listen to those guys, too. And I I know that he passed away, I think, during COVID time. uh, He passed away. Right
0: about a year ago.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking the other day, I heard him on the radio. I was like, damn it, I would have loved to have seen them because I never saw them.
0: Those records, I saw them. I remember seeing them one time open up for Speed Speedwagon in Atlanta. Me and my friends were standing up singing every word and, and we, we couldn't have been more than 18, maybe 17. But I remember like one of the first times in my life I was like, I'm going to take this crap sitting down. I turned around to this adult behind me and I was like, this is the band we like, man. You know, I'm going to stand up and sing. I'll say anything for Ario too, but get over it, mate. <laughs>
3: That's right. Pal. Yeah, they've got a lot of good tunes. There's no doubt about it. So I've got some collective soul stories. One of them I have to tell you because it's actually pretty great. I had a show with you guys one time in St. Louis. You guys were playing at Soldiers Memorial downtown as part of the, the thing. it was Rib America Festival. And backstage, whatever, did meet and greet stuff. And I remember dealing specifically with Ed because he did a couple interviews with Casey and something else over there. And then like a week later, my family and i at the time was just me my wife and my first son he was little we're in great wolf lodge in cincinnati ohio sitting there eating like you know crappy cheeseburgers and I, and no one else is hardly in there and i look over and sitting at the bar is this guy and i'm like damn that guy looks really familiar where have i seen that guy you know and i just keep eating and thinking like who is this dude i've seen him before and then it clicked in my head i'm like that's that's the lead singer of Collective Soul. And I'm in Great Wolf Lodge of all places. So I walked over to him. I said, and he looked at me like, because we had just seen each other within a week. And looked at me like, where have I seen you before? Both of us kind of did. And I'm like, you're Ed from Collective Soul, aren't you? i like, why are you in Great Wolf Lodge? <laughs> he goes, I'm not just hanging out here. I've got a family too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, pretty funny.
0: We find ourselves in some interesting spots. You know, got to take care of logistics.
3: I guess. But I remember playing you guys back when I started in college radio. I was playing uh, that first record and the second record on on college radio at the time. And I actually uh, came to a show and interviewed Dean backstage for the radio station and got a radio liner and stuff. I don't remember what album that was on, but there's my two stories. So we might our, our paths have crossed before unbeknownst to either one of us.
0: You're a promoter, man. You've crossed paths with Collective Soul.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You guys have, you guys really mix well with a little bit of everybody. You know, some bands from that era, it's like they really can only tour with other bands from that era where you guys can play with Sammy Hagar. you can play with a Soul Asylum. You can play with a Stone Temple Pilots. You can play with Aerosmith. I mean, that's got to be, I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's, Pretty unique. You didn't get, you somehow didn't get pigeonholed. Was that on purpose or do you look back on it as kind of like, kind of luck?
0: And in the beginning, a lot of writers would try to pigeonhole us. And then the more records we would make, the more it became very apparent that there's really no, there's no true pigeonhole for us. But what we would say is if the Beatles are rock and roll and they can have helter skelter and they can have, Long and Winding Road, then we're a rock and roll band. Quit trying to pigeonhole us. And that's where we live. We've, we've got a bunch of different influences, and we bring them into every one of our albums.
2: Certainly. The vibrating record that I was listening to today, it reminded me of, they just came out with, the, for all you Beatle nerds out there, the Revolver, where they stripped it back, in the deluxe version of Revolver. And if there's a record that ever was what you were just talking about with every song being a different thing that was the first time that had ever happened in pop music and that's kind of what i was when i was listening to vibrating i was thinking man these guys aren't afraid to do that and that's a bold step you know where every song's like you know you got taxman then eleanor rigby then i'm only sleeping i mean in the first three songs you've run the gamut of any kind of feel that you could muster up in, quote, unquote, rock music. And you guys do the same thing. Well, I mean, yeah,
0: it's a great example. My hair's just stood up when you mentioned those first three songs. I'm still super passionate about, about rock and roll. But yeah, man, just like I said, if the Beatles are a rock band and you didn't pigeonhole them, then please don't try to pigeonhole us because we're a rock band too, and that's all we are.
4: That's been a band that a lot of people have clearly been inspired by and got into music because of, but you're so you're so right. They're, they're so eclectic. Um, and they, I think they were pretty lucky to have George Martin too. But these boys had ears that went back to Ed. Got you know they were bringing George Formby or you know classical music and so on into their into their midst. Um, I, I need to ask you about your album covers. Dose and uh, even the Vibrating album. That one is quite. It almost feels like a hypnosis cover. There's something going on between that couple. Tell me about who do you look to for your album covers. How involved are you in the actual creation of your, your visuals? Oh, we are, we're inspired by art. So yeah. And
0: we were inspired by album covers as art. Thanks to people like you, we're the ones that are making the shots. Uh, I'll, I'll reference Ed again. Ed, Ed's super artistic, man. And he, he comes up with a lot of things that, that we, you know, we all get the, get in there and find the uh, boundaries and figure out what's going to be cool and but uh, for, for a lot of those things, it probably started in Ed's head. Um, I remember the Dosage record was always, um, it was always hailed as, a, as like, a, I think we got top 10 cover of the year in 98 or something with the Dosage cover. Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's art, and it needs to, you know, you, we don't, now, and who would have bet this, now we do get to see vinyl again, we do get to see albums again, who would have bet that 20 years ago, But uh, but that's the way we always look at it, as a piece of art you know and not and, and we also from the very beginning we're like the last thing we ever want to see on a cover of our record is us you know we want we wanted concept art
4: i understand that completely that's always one of my first questions when i'm working with a band is do we care to be visible or are we going to be more like pink floyd and the beatles even though the beatles were on rubber soul and albums like that but they've had a lot of conceptual covers one of the most brave covers in history is the white album what a great cheeky move man dude i i didn't uh, ever think about that as like being pretty great and bold that's that's true yeah i mean i don't think there's many people that could have done it speaking of of creative fathers my dad bought me a, a jigsaw puzzle a 1000 jigsaw puzzle of the white album <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> <what? great>. wow
3: <laughs> and how far along are you on that he's still
4: working on it yeah even the very painterly covers collective soul the green and the blue one with the stripe even the i think it's the best of it's still dosage or something was it
0: seven year itch that was the atlantic record years it's kind of opposite of the white album it's all black you know
4: yeah and then there's the rabbit which is quite cool too just that sort of out of focus rabbit is cool
0: it was just a self-titled record the second self-titled record but uh yeah it's referred to as the rabbit record now
2: yeah i got say one thing about your band On your records, on your Serengeti uh, driver's record, and all the stuff you've done in Collective Soul, but vibrating especially, again, the arrangements that you guys do, how long does it take you to figure out those arrangements? Do you all sit in the same room and do it? Is somebody kind of doing it in a Pete Townsend way where here's a drum machine and da-da-da-da-da, learn this? Or How do you guys approach that? Because they're very meticulous. They're very great, really smart arrangements.
0: You know, Ed starts with amazing melodies and good ideas, but yeah, we we get in the room and we go by feel. We throw ideas around, and it's in, in some regard, it's the same way it's been for twenty something years now. We we go by feel. Uh, we just try to follow a path that's out there. I, I tell people all the time that when we're in that zone, where we're all together in the room, we're trying to figure out how to make the energy flow proper on this song. I just uh I try to listen. I try to take in more than I'm putting out. So when you're creating, it's like that's kind of a misnomer. I think a lot of people do that, but they don't understand. but it's a misnomer. so, so many other people when they pick up an instrument they think they're supposed to create, they're they're constantly thinking about what I, what can I put out? What can I put out? And i I always just listen and listen as much as I can, and then eventually we find it. We find it just by listening and it comes to you. So that's kind of I mean, it's a little. Uh, esoteric or whatever but
2: that's the problem with a lot of musicians they don't listen they're you know they're going oh let me get this let me work this in here and that's one thing i'll say about again about your arrangements i mean all the parts work together and you can tell the drums and the bass are just synchronized beautifully
0: and that's because we're listening man I, i tell a lot of young musicians this all the time your most powerful weapon is your ears I tell him that all the time.
4: Tell me about Jell. I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at the artwork for Jell. It reminds me of Gerald Scarf from The Wall or, or uh, uh what's his name, uh, Ralph Steadman. That's an interesting cover.
0: That's a soundtrack, right, Gel. Jell was on a soundtrack, but it was on the second record also, the first self-titled record.
4: Tell me about that artwork. I'm not sure
0: what was on the single artwork, really, to be honest with you.
4: <laughs> it looks like something from, if you know Gerald Scarf or the... Characters from the wall. It's quite manic, you know. It's like Ralph Steadman. It's very different.
3: You're gonna have to you're gonna have to go back, Will, and look at your artwork. How
4: many years ago was that? <laughs> <laughs> right, you've slept since then. Sure. That's the gel cover.
0: There we go. Yeah, that was uh that was reference to uh it was on the Jerky Boys soundtrack. So technically, that was the Jerky Boys artwork.
3: Oh right yeah, there. Jerky Boys. I forgot about them. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So i I've, I've got some questions on the live side. What was the first concert you went to as a fan?
0: Yeah. yeah, the first one, I first arena I stepped into, it was, I was in 10th grade, and it was U2 Joshua Tree. And yeah, I, mean, I remember stepping in that arena, and it's like, whoa. It's all, all it is is a stage and a bunch of lights. I love this. And then, of course, it was... a. Uh, lifelong uh, experience to be able to see that record live. Yeah,
3: Well, that's cool. Joshua Tree. I actually worked on the, uh, you know, the Joshua Tree tour that came back and did stadiums a few years ago. That was, I don't know if you, did you get a chance to see, I know you saw the first one. Did you get a chance to see the the recent one? Uh, okay.
0: No, I didn't see that one. I, I've seen him a couple times since then, but yeah, I haven't seen that one.
3: Um, where was that show at? It would have
0: been at the Omni in Atlanta. It's no, no longer there. It's in the same spot. There's a new arena in the same spot, but.
3: Yeah. I also like to ask uh, a lot of times, too, is, you know, you've had a long, you know, career now and, and you've got the chance to play with a lot of different people open for different bands. But what are what are some of those what are some of the stories you can tell us? Kind of those pinch me stories where you're kind of like, I can't believe I'm in this situation Or you know, over the years when you look back, you share a few of those.
0: I, I kind of wish and I kind of don't wish I wish we had like cameras that we held around us all the time in the 90s. You know, we didn't do that in the 90s. Uh, but yeah, man, I've been fortunate. That's one of the best things that's come about with, you know, due to this career is uh, all the great people we've got to meet. I mean, you mentioned Sammy Hagar. I I, I'll reference this one all the time. If people talk about it, The, the 95 tour with Van Halen really changed us as a band and all of us as individuals, those guys, they took us under their wing. It was like, um, and it wasn't a father figure. It was a, it was an older brother figure. You know, it, they just took us under their wing. They're like, you guys got something. We're going to support y'all. Check this out. Here's how you do it. You know? And they really helped us out. I mean, um, that's right when we realized our first manager probably wasn't shooting straight. They helped us start that path. Um, and I still, uh, one of my, I call them relics. One of my favorite relics is a base that Eddie Van Halen gave me. Um, So I think about those days and I'm like, wow, man, we, we, it was three months of arenas and um, Eddie Van Halen and Sammy, Michael, they were in our dressing room every day. And we were, we were given carte blanche until we, until we screwed up and we never screwed up.
2: That was smart.
0: Eddie, Eddie was a setup too, man. He was, Eddie always, wants to talk to people and he wants to, you know, he he talked plenty to Sammy and Michael over the years, I'm sure. And his brother. So he was in our dressing room all the time. So we would just talk about random things. Right. And, and Eddie Van Halen, you probably heard the stories, but everywhere he goes, he's got a guitar on his neck, the cigarettes either up here on his neck or his headstock or in his mouth. And back then he was carrying around non-alcoholic beers. Uh, but he, it was a setup. He's like, we were talking about guitars. He's like, it's like, yeah, I've only, you know, I've only got these two bases, you know, I just started playing bass three years ago. You know, what do you want your next base to be at and, and Eddie asked me, I was like, yeah, I want to all, you know, I was like, I was into all black. I was like all black, black pickups, black pick guard. And I need a five string. I've never played a five string. And literally, even though I was talking to Eddie Van Halen, because he was in my dressing room all the time and we were just chatting back and forth all the time, I didn't even see the setup coming. But about two weeks later, Five stream music man in my dressing room, and then on top of that, he had his guitar tech use his communication, whatever column he was using. When I walked in the arena, Eddie followed me in the dressing room, and there was, and he, I didn't know he was behind me. He watched me open it up.
3: Yeah, wow, I mean, that's, that's great. That's very cool, man. That's pretty tough to beat. I mean, that's, that's real tough to beat.
0: It's a relic, <laughs> and and the bass is one thing, but literally, we learned so much from them and still when we see sammy and michael today it's a um, super special reunion
3: do you have that base nearby or is it to, it's in storage
0: i do but i've got i see like eight cases <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's oh, we can that's one now. of them <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll do i'm gonna start doing some shorts on all my bases from my studio i'm gonna i'm gonna do some like hey here's here's this one like you know maybe two minutes
2: at the most
3: you should, man. I mean, that story alone. I mean, you should just the story behind those things. I mean, that's yeah. You
2: should do that. That's great story, man.
3: Depending on how many you have, I mean, if you have a thousand bases, you know, you get to episode five hundred, you might be like, okay, dude, we got it.
2: It's not
0: Getty yeah. Lee. I got Getty Lee's big bass book right behind me. It's it's not Getty Lee, but uh, I did catalog all of my uh, instruments in the last month. Pictures and serial numbers. Uh, Thirty three bases. Not. Again, not not
4: Getty Lee, but it's pretty pretty big number. How many bases did Getty have? I mean, as much as I know Getty very well for forty six years now, fifty years actually. Oof, I don't know what
0: his total number would have been, but he started collecting, and he re- once he started collecting, he really got into it,
4: man. Um, You're preaching to the choir. I mean, if you've ever seen his baseball collection, I've seen it. On, I've seen it on video, or his wine cellar, or
0: <laughs> yeah. So once he got into classic bases, and I think I was watching the. It was a cool interview. I can't remember who it was. It's a really cool interview uh like a 60-minute interview, but yeah, they showed his ba- his base uh baseballs and all all the other collections, but he talked about when he started collecting bases and stuff and and how he would he got to travel around the world and collect
4: bases. I'm curious with with that glut of bases that you have, do they all have purpose or is it just acquiring because you like to collect them? Do you ever find when you're doing a session that your tech, your tech brings all of them to the session because each one has a place? Or do you pretty much rely on a core set of bass? I, I will use some different stuff. Like
0: we're, we're currently in production on a, on a record that's a lot of piano and strings. Um, and I, I picked up a new bass, an Epiphone viola bass. Um, kind of similar to um, the Hoffner.
4: But currently, yeah.
0: But the Hofners for me, every time I picked up a Hofner, it's so lightweight. It's just the tone. I, Look, just because Paul McCartney can make something sound good does not mean it's a good bass. You know what I mean? It's a so, one-trick I,
2: pony for sure.
0: It's a one-trick pony. I couldn't get really good tone out of it. But the Epiphone viola bass, they they, they did a little bit of a hybrid. And it get, it has a little more power and a little more weight to it. So I'm using that. Um, but I've got a couple of Stingrays that are on Collective Soul records from, from from the day. I got a 65 Jazz. It was my father's. It's on a lot of records. Yeah. Um, I got two precisions they made for me in the custom shop that I use a lot. I got a PRS that Paul Reed gave me in the 90s, a PRS bass with a handwritten serial number on the back that you wouldn't believe it, but it's a small scale, short scale. It sounds like a monster coming at you. It's all over Collective Soul Records. There is a circle of probably seven that I've used more, but I don't keep bases around that don't that I don't think have a use someday.
4: Who do you listen to? Who have you admired? As far as bass players are concerned, through the years, you know,
0: definitely McCartney. Uh, I, I love this, I love the simplicity of uh, Adam Clayton's lines. How he can not play a super crazy melody, just a just a nice little driving rhythm, and it can kind of be the 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 soul, the motor of the song. Um, I was always a big fan of Sting's artistry. Um, um, John Paul Jones, that's a huge huge man. John Paul Jones getting on keys, he's on mandolin. His bass line, give me a break, dude. Those bass lines on the Led Zeppelin tunes are insane. Uh, dare I mention Paul McCartney one more time?
3: But. It's okay, he could get two. Well, awesome, congratulations on uh, the new record uh, for the band, and uh, and you're gonna and you got some new solo stuff in the works, is that right? You
2: got a you got one in the pipeline, right? We do. We have one in the pipeline, and a
0: super exciting thing we're doing it in Palm Springs at Elvis's Palm Springs home. We're going to record a record, do some Elvis songs, have some guest singers come in and sing Elvis songs with us.
3: Wow, man. Wow, Wow. Wow. cool. So this is Collective Soul doing this.
0: It it is. It is Collective Soul doing this. And, uh, yeah. I
3: I
4: have to tell you, I had the privilege of speaking to Priscilla Presley a couple of years ago. I finished designing a book which was about the experience that uh, Steve Binder, who was the director and producer of the NBC Comeback Special in 1968, um and that was what they subsequently made the film about with uh with Boz Lerman. And Boz did the foreword for the book, but it was it was a treat just out of nowhere in my career to be kind of anywhere associated with the unlikely, you know, Elvis Presley and and to have had a phone call conversation with Priscilla was a treat. It was great. Yeah, we we've always been fans of Elvis and
0: uh, you can always you can always go back and look at his career and find something new and exciting and
4: and like you didn't know that, you know. Really, cool. you can also understand the segue between him and, uh, and the Beatles, of course, and the Shadows. You know, we
2: actually did in two thousand three. The uh, John Mellencamp band did a live broadcast uh, from Graceland in one of the rooms, not the Jungle Room, but so we sat up and did the we we did a covers record, a bluesy kind of record, and we did a bunch of songs from that. So it was a trip to just be inside that. Built his home for all day long and Chad one time I got up and sat in a chair you weren't supposed to and it was like no got to get up off there it was like okay sorry it's the room we're playing in I just got off my drum stool for a second and like sat down for literally a second and it was like Oops, shame on you Dave I know it still a chair <laughs> I wanted to go shoot some tv sets out right after that you know there's still some bullet holes with Graceland.
3: <laughs> what about solo stuff? You're working on some new solo stuff too?
0: I do have some new solo stuff coming out. Um, but right now I'm just, I'm really deep into, um, you know, I raised a family, uh, spent spent a lot of time with my kids when I would be away from Collective Soul. And I'd produce a little bit, but my kids are older. My youngest is 17. And uh, I'm ready to go full swing into, into production. So I've got a lot of productions coming out right now through the studio. Um, A band called uh, Red and the Revelers. I got their shirt on right now. Out of Mobile, some young kids from Woodstock, Georgia, just released a record. Uh, The Corduroy Blues—the name of the band. Check that one out. Uh, It's hard to say a band sounds like Beatles and Queen, and they're only 21 and 20 years old. But uh, check it out, see what you
4: think. But
0: I'm full—I'm full on into wanting to, on my spare time, produce
4: other acts right now the string and piano-centric project you're working on. Is that uh, for your band or is that a separate project? That's for Collective Soul. Oh, it is? Oh, it is. Oh. And a lot, a lot of times, even on even on my records, funny enough, uh, I didn't play all those bass tracks.
0: I had Mark Wilson on Belong. Uh, I had a couple, about three or four of the songs I had not the bass. On.
3: Well, thank you, Will, for joining us and uh, continued success to you. Yeah, and appreciate yours. you
0: guys. See uh, you again next week. And we'll release another
2: record. Another record? Yeah, man, pleasure,